The following Bible study was given at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship by Pastor Brett Metter. Why don't you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I love that story of the preacher that was preaching, and he was somewhat long-winded. And uh, a, a guy gets up and starts walking out, and the preacher was a little offended that the guy was just, you know, up and leaving. And so he said, young man, where are you going? He says, I'm going to get a haircut. And the preacher said, well, shouldn't you have taken care of that before the service? And he said, I didn't need a haircut before the service. <laughs> The book of Ecclesiastes is a long, tedious sermon. In fact, the name Ecclesiastes is another way of saying the preacher. And so Solomon is preaching a sermon. And and if you've been with us the last several weeks, wow, it's sort of this drudgery through depression and despair. Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Soap bubbles, soap bubbles, meaningless, meaningless. It's just emptiness, emptiness. And, he, and then he goes with his, you know, multiple point sermon. I tried sex, vanity. I tried wealth, meaningless. I've tried power. I tried prestige, uh, uh, you know, uh, popularity, meaningless, vanity. All is vanity under the sun. And, and just these multiple points of just things that don't work. And he tried it all. He tried everything. And so today, praise the Lord, we get to hear the conclusion of the matter. And what I love about this is he's going to actually tell us the whole thing. Remember how Ecclesiastes has been sort of tricky because Solomon is describing the disconnected life, disconnected from God. And disconnection from God means discontentment with life. And so even the things that he's saying is, is true or false, and you don't, it's hard to discern sometimes because he's saying, man, life is meaningless. Doing any work is meaningless. And he's saying everything that's true. If you're disconnected from God, then what he said was true. But if you're connected to God, well, that changes the whole story. So we've been learning what not to do here in the book of Ecclesiastes, but he sum, summarizes it and says, here's the whole end of the, the discussion. And now he's going to tell us what to do. Thank the Lord. Finally. It's a little bit like the book of Job because Job is this tedious discussion between Job and his friends. And then finally, praise the Lord, in chapter 38, the Lord steps in and says, okay, here's the deal. And he explains everything and says, everything you guys were talking about, a bunch of wackos. But then the Lord said, um, but here's the truth. And, and in the same way, Solomon now, he says, okay, here's the conclusion of the matter. And that will be our text for the morning. Wednesday night, we'll finish it up verse by verse. We'll be looking at the last couple chapters Wednesday night, Lord willing. But let's take a look at the last summary here in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we'll, we'll begin there in verse 13. It says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. What's the key to life? That's the question he's asking. And he says it's not wealth or prosperity or all that stuff. You know, it's kind of funny if you ask me, because, you know, if you look at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, you know, you can really shorten the sermon quite handily. All you got to do, if you ask me, is just go to verse, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, the words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then just jump ahead. So what's the conclusion of the matter? Fear God, keep his commandments, uh, for God shall bring judgment. You know, like, like uh, that would have been a shorter sermon. Well, Brett, you should listen to yourself there and shorten things up. <laughs> um, well, the, the thing is, we preachers, uh, sometimes we wax on and on. It's, it's, a, it's a fault. But, but at the same time, you know, you wonder, why is this 12 chapters of just kind of brutality? What's the point? And one of the things I've learned to value in the Bible is, is it's living and powerful. That it's, it's not just some book. It's not just some words. There's a living nature to the scriptures as you read it. And I believe when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, the sort of depression, depression and the feeling of just kind of like, ugh, man, this book is so heavy and brutal. And, I, you know, um, I think that's what we're supposed to feel. The living part of the Bible, when you read Ecclesiastes, you're supposed to feel what Solomon felt as you read through chapter after chapter to say it's all a waste of time, everything's meaningless. And you're, you're supposed to almost get sort of into that mode like, wow, ugh, this feels like a kick in the gut. But, but Solomon, he spends all this time and then he says, okay, we want to know the conclusion? Here it is. Um, living for earthly things, man, that's a real danger. It's a real problem. Um, you know, it's interesting, by the way, you know, when you, when you think about, uh, you know, Solomon's plan of, of life, he, he said, basically, I'm going to try to find the key to life in everything. He had women. He gathered a thousand women, you know, 700 wives, 300 concubines, um, the most beautiful women, you know, regionally uh, around the world, you know, and he married all these women all from around the world, exotic. You know, you'd think the guy would be happy with that, but vanity. Um, by the way, there was a um, Willing Jennings Bryant. Maybe you guys, um, maybe you guys remember uh, reading about him or knowing about him in history. You know, he was uh, he was a famous politician, orator. Um, you know, in, in 1860 to uh, 1925, that was kind of his life. Um, but when he went to the father uh, of the woman he was dating to ask for her hand in marriage, uh, this orator, this young man who was kind of polished speaker, he thought he would polish it up when he asked his, his uh, you know, father-in-law to be for her hand in marriage. He thought he'd throw a little Bible verse in there to sound kind of eloquent. And as he asked for the hand in marriage, he quoted from Solomon, Solomon's words, Proverbs 18.22. And he said, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor with the Lord. Well, the father, uh, he actually knew the scriptures pretty well too. And, and uh, he, he, he replied by quoting not Solomon, but Paul, the apostle. He said, so 1 Corinthians 7.38 says, So then, he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. <laughs> but Brian, there never being at a loss for words, he made his argument. He said, yes, but Paul had no wife and Solomon had 700. Therefore, I believe Solomon ought to be the better judge as to marriage. <laughs> Interesting discussion. <laughs> um, Solomon, he had lots of, of wives and, and go, goes down as kind of famous for that. But, but man, he found that that was emptiness, vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. So he had the, 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 the women. He also had a party scene. Man, he tried the party scene. Live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, he said, that's the key. And so he, um, by the way, he imported baboons uh, for entertainment. Pe- peacocks from Africa to, enter- to entertain his guests. Um, you know, while he kept wine flowing freely, uh, but after parting for years, you know, he just said, man, it's empty, 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 empty. 
Um, he had power. Solomon had so much power that he actually uh, took much more land uh, from other nations that were enemies. Even after David, you know, died, David subdued the enemies of Israel. And then Solomon just kept furthering the kingdom. And, and by the way, it was during Solomon's reign where Israel possessed the most land mass in all of Israel's history, even more than today. It's interesting um, how, uh, by the way, the world looks at Israel and the land and all this stuff. Uh, I, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but it is an interesting thing how the world says Israel's occupying the land of the Palestinians. And man, people just don't know their history. Who are the Palestinians? Well, they, they used to be Jews and Arabs that lived in Palestine up until the 1960s. That's a, the Palestinians are a new people, not an ancient people. Uh, Yasser Arafat, remember the guy with the black and white turban and the big lips and walking around with the gun on the side? The guy that was, you know, responsible for the Munich, you know, slaughtering of Jewish athletes at the Olympics there. And that was Yasser Arafat. He's the one who really put the Palestinians on the map. Um, But, you know, in the 1920s, the Palestinian orchestra was a bunch of Jews. Uh, The Palestinian Times newspaper was a Jewish newspaper by uh, a Jewish editorial of of a Jewish team. Like it it was in modern times, the Palestinians kind of came in. But but it's interesting because the world says that land is not for the Jews. Well, if you look at your Bible, God gave to the children of Israel a massive area of land. If you read in the book of Numbers and a couple other places, God defines the promised land of what the Jews would ultimately possess. So Brett, is that what Solomon possessed? Nope. At the peak of Israel's history with Solomon's reign, Solomon only possessed one-tenth of what God actually promised to the Jews. That's kind of interesting. Um, So then that remains to be a question. Well, then was God just wrong that the Jews would never possess the land that they were going to possess? Question, when will the Jews possess all of the land that the Bible defines? Yeah, when Christ returns and the king sits on the throne in Jerusalem, Jesus, that's the second coming of Christ. He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And that's when we'll see, um, you know, the ultimate fulfillment of that land being given to the Jews. So, by the way, if you want to be on the right side of the way history is going to unfold, uh, follow the Bible. Uh, Don't be standing there saying, well, those, you know, they should split the land and give it over. That's just a wrong biblical sort of way of thinking. Uh, Go with the Bible. Don't go with Wolf Blitzer and CNN. Uh, just, just saying. Uh, they're, they're just wrong about that one. Um, but be that as it may, Solomon did, to his credit, um, man, he, he had the greatest landmass in Israel's history. He had, you know, power. And uh, did this satisfy him? No, he just said it's all empty. And so he turned to philosophy and science and prosperity. And, and yet um, he declared it all empty and, and even, you know, seemed kind of suicidal. When you read Ecclesiastes, you kind of think, man, the guy was like ready, just wanted to die. He wished he'd never been born, he said over and over again. Speaking of that, you know, it's interesting because there's a sort of a correlation with, um, you know, suicide and success and wealth and popularity, just like Solomon. Um, There's a relationship which makes life complete. Without that relationship, the Lord, there's just this void and there's a huge vacuum in life. And that's the problem with Hollywood and some of the famous musicians, you know, um, there's, I could give you tons of examples. Some of the ones that are sort of rattling that I remember hearing about in history, um, H.G. Wells, famous historian, philosopher. um, He said at age 61, he said this, I have no peace. All life 
is at the end of the tether. The poet Byron said, My days are in yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of life are gone. The worm and the canker and the grief are mine alone. The literary genius Thoreau said, Most men live lives of quiet desperation. These guys were just saying, man, it's it's just miserable. Um, Ralph Barton, one of the top cartoonists of the nation, maybe some of you remember his work, um, he left this note pinned to his pillow before taking his own life. He said, I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I've gone from wife to wife, from house to house, visited great countries of the world, but I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. And then he went and killed himself. You know, you hear of these sad stories, and by the way, that suicide is on the rise within young people, within famous people. That's not seeming to go away. And, and yet the world still believes that, man, we, we, can, we can get our, follow our dreams and get what we want and it has to do with stuff or experiences, or thrills, or travels. And people, you know, the millennials were famous. I want to, you know, fulfill my dreams. Um, it reminds me of that, that old guy was reminding, you know, the young guy saying, oh, I just want to go and, you know, in my life, and I want to soar to the heights. And the old man saying, no, I'm just sore. <laughs> it's true, life wears you down. And, and man, you think you're fulfilling your dreams, but there's a reason why you know, people feel totally empty. Uh, and that's just the sad truth. By the way, um, you know, one of the problems uh, about, you know, the stuff that people are trying to go for is, you know, reaching, reaching for the top, reaching their dreams. Um, and then when they find out that it's just like Solomon says, empty. That's what Solomon is trying to tell us in this sermon. And so after he says, you know, living for earthly things is a waste of time. He then tells us here the conclusion, and this is where I'd like to break it down, and, and let's, let's look what Solomon says. And here's where he speaks real bona fide wisdom to you and to me. Um, it's got three major components to his word to us. Um, here in verse 13, the first one is, number one, fear God. What are we supposed to do? Fear God. I've done sermons on this. Even the last couple of years, we've talked about being God-fearing people. We need to bring that back, God-fearers, uh, and be a God-fearing man and a God-fearing woman. You know, and, and, and this is something, if you're new to Christianity or new to the faith, some people kind of wonder what this fearing God thing is all about. Why should we be afraid of God? Um, well, there's kind of an answer, yes and no. It depends on your perspective. I remember in C.S. Lewis's, you know, beautiful uh, uh, example of, of really an allegory of, of, the, of the gospel in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when, when Lucy, uh, I think it's, I forget which book it was, where Lucy's standing in front of the lion and, and they were talking about something about, you know, um, should, you know, should we be afraid of this lion, you know, and, and you know, and uh, the, the answer is like, yeah, be afraid. But, but when you read the story, you realize the lion Depends on what side of the lion you're on. If the lion's on your side, then he's a good lion. But if you're an enemy of the lion, well, be afraid. And, and really, that's kind of the, the truth about, about fearing God. You know, it's interesting because uh, having a healthy fear of God, it means to reverence, respect, or revere. It means to um, say, I'm, I'm afraid 
especially if you're a believer here, if you're already a Christian, your sins are forgiven, you know you're headed for heaven, we're not afraid of God in that sense. But we are God-fearers in the sense of afraid to go against God, afraid to go against his will, his work, his way, because we know his way is good and right and better for us. To live contrary to God is to mess your life up completely. To follow God and walk with him, that's to do the right thing and live your life right. And so a God-fearing person has respect and reverence and reveres the Lord. Now, this is something Solomon gave to us at the beginning of Proverbs. In fact, in, in Proverbs 1-7, if you remember, that's how he starts the book of Proverbs, fear God. He says this in Proverbs chapter uh, 1, verse 7. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. The fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, the start, the origin of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So he starts his book of Proverbs out with the fear of the Lord, but he ends his book of Ecclesiastes with the fear of the Lord. And I I think it's something that we should learn from. It's almost like he teaches about fearing the Lord in Proverbs, and then he gives a big sermon in Ecclesiastes about why we should fear the Lord. Because, man, living for this life, um, what is fearing the Lord versus living this life for party animal, power, prestige, pleasure? What's, what's that got to do with fearing the Lord? Um, the, the answer is, I've heard an old quote from an old preacher who said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. There's a, there's a funny thing that happens. If you're not fearing God in, the, in that best sense of that word, man, you get tangled up with doing what humanity wants to do. It's all about you and what you want. And it causes you to be dissatisfied, discontented with life. And so really, this is what he's doing. Now, by the way, in Ecclesiastes, in the middle part, if you remember, you can jot this down in your notes, but in chapter 8, he did kind of touch on this, even in the middle of his sermon. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8.12, it says, Though a sinner do evil a hundred years, a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. But it shall not be well with the wicked, Neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. Who's the one who has days that are like a shadow, you know, where your days just come and go? It's the person who does not fear God. It seems like your life is just empty and and going by ever so quickly. But the God-fearing person, what does it say? Man, that person, it'll be well with them that fear God. So this is, this is really the major theme of what we're supposed to glean from the wisdom of Solomon. And he had to learn the hard way. And the question is, what about you? What about me? Are we going to have to learn the hard way? The, the thing that's amazing to me is, um, truthfully, most of us are still trying to learn the hard way. Oh, we know what I'm talking about, you know, academically or logically, but there's something in us. Oh, if we could just get that house, then I shall be happy. Or can I get that job or if my career really gets to where it takes off, then I shall be content with life. It's all I want is to be married. If if all I can do, Lord, is just be married, then then it'll be awesome, the married people. If all I can do is be single again, (laughs) then I shall be happy. Uh, It's funny how we think that certain things are going to bring total contentment. But Solomon's saying there's really only one thing that will bring 
true blessing, and that is to fear God. And by the way, when you fear the Lord, it'll be well with you, including your marriage and your hobbies and your career and stuff like that. You can just trust the Lord's going to work stuff out according to his plan and purpose. Even if it doesn't fit your plan and purpose, when you fear the Lord, you know that ultimately, long-term, he's going to work stuff out. He doesn't promise he's going to work it all out in this lifetime. He doesn't promise that everything's going to be perfect that you're going to be completely happy. Uh, There are some people that preach a gospel. If you become a Christian, then everything's going to be rosy in your life. That's just not true. The Bible actually teaches that if you live godly, you're going to suffer. (laughs) Uh, It it shouldn't shock us to, to realize it's not about this life. But the conclusion is not to live for this life, but to fear God. That's number one. So he says, here, the conclusion on the whole matter, number one, fear God. Number two, Then he says, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Keeping his commandments. Wow. Now this would, to Solomon's listeners in the local time of that day, they'd think, oh man, good luck with that. Because what were the commandments? Well, of course you have the law of God and you have the law of Moses. Do you know there's a difference? The law of God is the Ten Commandments. Uh, given to the Jews and to us, those Ten Commandments. Um, But the law of Moses are the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, given to the Jews. um, And man, those are some tedious laws. Um, You and I, had they enacted those laws, uh, you and I probably wouldn't even be here today. Why? Well, those laws were tough. Some of them were tough. Some of them were easy. What do you mean, Brett? Well, like the law that says thou shalt not eat bats. I, I'm living victoriously in that one. <laughs> Eating bats, I'm not, oh boy, I could go for a bat right now, man. I, I, I'm glad that we don't eat bats. Now in Vanuatu, where Tad and Marna and our missionaries are, they eat bats all the time there. They have those flying fox bats, bats six foot wingspan. Uh, some of these bats are huge. They look like foxes with bat wings. And they just soar over the skies of Vanuatu. And when I was there uh, quite a few years ago now, uh, a guy, a buddy of mine, Samuel, and uh, some of the guys we were walking through, uh, uh, they call it coconuts, uh, their palm tree field. And, um, and uh, Samuel said, hey, look, there's a flying fox up there. And, and, uh, and he said, watch. And he grabs this um, kind of this piece of stick. And there's a tree there that's got really heavy wood, but it was a little stick that probably weighed like 10 pounds. It was really heavy for a small little stick, but he picked it up. And Samuel's just one of these guys is good at everything. And he just kind of took the stick and went, hit the bat, hit the ground, grabbed it, took it home, stuck a stick through it and roasted it over fire. Delicious. No, I didn't need it. I, I didn't. I didn't need it. But they do. They eat those all the time there in Vanuatu, these flying fox bats. I'm living victoriously in that. But you and I, we wouldn't have survived some of those laws. One of the laws of Moses was that if you were disobedient to your parents, they would take you outside of the village and stone you to death. I wouldn't have made it past two uh, with that law. Man, that, that, thank the Lord. See, now you say, well, Brett, this is confusing. Then, So Solomon's saying, fear God and keep his commandments. And you're saying, well, we're not keeping his commandments. And, and we're, you know, uh, I had bacon this morning. By the way, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not struggling with the bat one, but I am struggling with the pork, the bacon one. Uh, and so are you, many of you. Of course, this is Portland. Most of you guys are like um, vegans and stuff. So 
whatever. No, I'm just, just kidding. But what is the deal with the law of Moses? Are we under that law? Well, Ben, that's a whole other teaching. If Go through the book of Galatians with us. But remember what Galatians says? We are no longer under that law, but the law is a schoolmaster. It's got a purpose. The law still serves a purpose. And as we read the Old Testament, we remember that, man, those laws, if you want to be perfectly righteous before God, you've got to keep every single one of those laws, and you've got to keep them perfectly. Um, and, and if you don't, you're doomed. And you say, well, who can be saved? Well, that's the right question. Who can be saved from, from all of us lawbreakers? Well, Galatians says the law is a schoolmaster that drives us to Jesus Christ. Who, what did Jesus do? He perfectly fulfilled the law. We go to Jesus who kept the law perfectly, and then the perfect one, Jesus, died on the cross for our sins in our place. And because of, like we sang earlier, the blood, the innocent blood that was shed, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so we are able to, not by sacrifice of bulls, rams, goats, birds, stuff like that, we are saved by the one sacrifice, the Lamb of God that was sacrificed on the cross, sort of, if you would, the altar uh, for our sins. And that's the thing about the law. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus, I love it because he simplified the law for us, not 613 laws. And, and man, it gets complicated. In the Old Testament commandments, there were 248 of those 613 laws that were positive injunctions, things you're supposed to do, but 365 of those were negative prohibitions, things you were not supposed to do. One for every day of the year, 365. And so, um, man, a lot of do's and don'ts in the law. And it can be dizzying trying to keep those laws. And, and by the way, you know, the Jews were God's people and are God's chosen people. And many of them still try to keep those 613 laws. And, and they even wrote commentaries on those laws to make sure that they really didn't break those laws and added even more complexity to the, the law of Moses. And it, it, it's just dizzying and, and the things that they have to do and, and the things that they added even to try to make it so they'd be keepers of the law. So when Jesus came, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, they wanted to trick him and trap him in his words. And these law-keeping Jews saying, well, this guy doesn't seem to be keeping all the traditions that we've come up with to be keepers of the law. Well, what are we going to do? Let's try to trick him. Would you keep your finger right here and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22? I want to show you how they tried to trap Jesus. It's Matthew chapter 22. And, um, you know, the Sadducees, who were kind of big-time religious leaders, Jesus had shut their mouths earlier. Uh, They tried to trap him, trick him. But you don't try to trap God. That's always a bad plan. But these guys kept trying. The Sadducees' mouths were shut by Jesus. And here in Matthew 22, check out what happens. It's Matthew 22, uh, 34. It says there, but when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? Oh, we're going to get him. He's going he's gonna to try to say what the, you know, which law is the most or, you know, and this guy, they, they, they viewed Jesus wrongly, but they viewed him as a lawbreaker. So they were hoping to trap him with his words, with his actions. 
But I love Jesus. He never gets trapped. So he answers, verse 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Boy, I love this. Jesus boils this, you know, 613 laws of Moses down to two. Don't you like simplicity? I can remember two. And it's almost like Jesus wrote this out in crayon for us. Love God, love others. We can remember this. This is doable. Now, what I love about this, by the way, is while we're no longer into the law of the Old Testament, those two laws, Jesus says, everything hangs on those two. In other words, those two, you can't have the others without those two. And it's true. Have you ever thought, what does it do to your life, your action, your lifestyle, if you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? What what does that do to you? Well, if you love God, will you go out and, you know, do sinful stuff? You know, if you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. So the idea of loving Jesus, loving God, that, that, that's saying, I, I, I want to follow him. I want to do what he tells me to do. And to live contrary to God is not to love God. Now, um, that, this is great. Not only loving God, but loving others. And, and uh, one guy put it, I think it was, was it Augustine who said, you know, uh, love God with, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then do whatever you want. And if you think through that, if you're loving God with everything you have in your being, which we probably don't, I wish we could say we do, but if you did, you wouldn't be doing sinful stuff. If we love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love him, to keep his commandments is to love him. And this is what Jesus boils it down to, just that issue of love God, love others. And so when Solomon says this, the Jews that heard him at that day would have been a little bit freaked out, you know, Fear God, keep his commandments. Good luck with that. But today, you and I can say, you know what? This is is doable. Fear God, yes, but also keep his commandments. This means love God and love others. Now, the loving God one, how do you do that? Some people say, Brett, I I noticed that Athey Creek people, they seem to love God. When they're worshiping songs and we're singing, there's some people that just seem to have a a love as they're worshiping. They're, They're just kind of singing from their heart. What's going on with that? How can you love God? Jesus gave us the answer on the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's what Jesus taught. So when you invest treasure into anything, that's where your heart goes. And so if you're one who's invested in the Lord, I'll tell you who loves God a lot, the person who's been forgiven a lot. Some of you lived a life of sin and debauchery, and you end up being messed up and hurt and wounded by your own lifestyle. But eventually you learned that God loved you and you submitted yourself to God, and you confessed your belief in Jesus and, and, and became a follower of the Lord. And when those horrible sins that messed up your life, suddenly you realize you're forgiven. Some of you had that burden lifted off your shoulders. And I'll, I'll tell you, the people that are worshipers, I've noticed they're oftentimes people that have been hurt deeply by their own sins. But they end up loving God because they know what the other side was like. And, and really, that's the thing. So you start to worship, sing songs of praise. You start to read the word of God, which is God's love letter to humanity. You start to pray and spend time with the Lord. And and, and that's the person who's invested time, energy, effort 
into God, that's the person that loves God. If your, your time and energy is not with God at all, but into hobbies or your career or even good things, ministry. I think there's people that are into ministry more than they're into God. Well, Brett, isn't it the same? Nope. I think there's pastors that are all about preaching and teaching and administrating churches and stuff, but their love for the Lord is not there. I think it comes out, sadly, in some of the sermons I've heard. You can kind of spot it. It it doesn't seem like they have a love relationship with God. They're just kind of mathematically doing sort of the ministry. Good things can become bad if you're doing things. What does the Bible say? Colossians 3 says, whatsoever you do, do, do heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Do what we do for the love of God. That's really what we can take away from this. Rather than living for ourselves, trying to find pleasure and prosperity, popularity under the sun, Solomon gives some wise advice. Fear God and keep his commandments. And the commandments, Jesus boiled them down, are simply this, love God and love others. So how are we doing with that? How are we doing with loving God, loving others? Um, you can tell how you're doing in this just by that battle that goes on between your flesh and your spirit. Um, what, what's that battle? Well, you know, the, the Bible kind of tells us that you're either pursuing your flesh or you're pursuing the spirit. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us. It's kind of an interesting uh, description of this. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 2, it says, But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present, with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but, but it says mighty through, through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He's saying this war that goes on in our our flesh, and our spirit, and the question is, who's winning? Does your flesh mostly win out, or is your spirit winning, where you're walking with the Lord, you're pursuing holy things and not chasing after worldly things? See, that's the problem. Solomon a large portion of his life, it was all about his flesh, satisfying the flesh, pursuing the flesh, and that battle was being lost. And that's what Solomon's saying. That was emptiness, vanity, a waste of time. And so here, this is a good word for us. He says, man, the conclusion of the matter is number one, fear God. Number two, keep his commandments and his new commandments that fulfill the old, if you would, love God, love others. But why should we do all this? Why should we walk with the Lord rather than live for ourselves? Um, The answer is number three, because he will judge. Verse 14 in our text, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, things that only you and God know about. He's going to judge all that stuff, whether it be good or whether it be evil. One of the things that we forget to ascribe to God's character and nature is that he is a judge and he's a righteous judge. And there's people that don't like to talk about this anymore. Judgment, 
God's punishment and wrath upon a sinful world? Uh, is, that, is that something we shouldn't talk about? Well, if it's true, if God's judgment is true, shouldn't we talk about that a lot? Like if heaven and hell and God's judgment of which way a person goes is legit, which it is, wouldn't, shouldn't that be like a major thing that we're concerned about? And, and it's interesting because the Bible talks a lot about that, but man, you can go to churches today and, and hear sermons on how to balance your checkbook or how to have a better family or how to you know, uh, go out and witness. Those are nice topics. But if heaven and hell are real and many people are headed one way or the other, wouldn't it be important for us to make that a major part of what we believe? You see, here's the thing, and, and this is review for some of you, but this is something I hope you're good at explaining. If you're not good at explaining this, you should really tune in. Because people don't understand what judgment and what God is going to do at the end, how it's all going to shake out. People don't understand this. Um, I'm always amazed at what people don't understand because they haven't really searched the scriptures. But there are two major judgments that the Bible speaks of. And there's a few others that we we could go into. And I've done whole sermons on this, but I just want to review with you kind of how this shakes out. The first judgment, let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Flip over there real quick. For in Revelation 20, um, if you follow the book of Revelation, the end of the book of Revelation gets closer to the millennial kingdom and where judgment's going to happen, the ultimate judgment. And it's referring to a, a judgment called the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. Again, this is one of those chapters of the Bible that, that some people avoid because it just freaks them out. Um, so what's going on? In, in Revelation chapter 20, you've got, you know, um, the, after the tribulation period, it's going to be where God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. You have the millennial kingdom, thousand years where Christ rules and reigns. That's the time I was talking about where Israel's borders would be broadened. But ultimately, at the end of that time, um, there's going to come a time where Satan will finally be done in, along with his other two compadres, it's, it's like uh, in the Bible, we have a holy trinity, but did you know there's an unholy trinity as well? Um, it's, a, it's a poser trinity, fake one, but it's um, in the book of Revelation, it talks about um, Satan, the devil, the Antichrist, or he's also called the beast, and then there was the false prophet. And these three individuals, by the end of the millennial kingdom, what's going to happen to them? And what's going to happen to the world and people who died? And how's it all, you know, end? Well, check it out. It's right here. Revelation chapter 20. It says um, in verse 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. Now, if you're a Bible student, you know that Greek word there is Gehenna which is that place of a lake of fire, outer darkness, total torment. Uh, it's what we traditionally think of as hell, and it's eternal in nature. So it says the devil was, that would deceive them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, it's not annihilation. Some people like to believe in this annihilation idea where well, when you die and if you go to hell, then you're just annihilated and you'll cease to exist. You'll cease to have, uh, you know, cognitive, cognitive 
faculties or, or thinking power. You'll just be gone. But the Bible doesn't really teach that. Um, some people are trying to say that, but the devil and his, his beast and his false prophet are going to this place where they're going to be tormented forever. And I believe the implication is that that happens along with everyone that goes to this place, place where we don't want to go. But go on, it goes on, it says in verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. People were freaked out by God. Talk about God-fearers. They're going to be afraid at this point. And they're going to run for their lives, but they won't be able to hide. And they'll be then placed right in front of God before the great white throne. And they'll have to stand there in front of God to be judged. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. This is where some people think, well, I hope my good outweighs my bad. Listen, if you're standing here at the great white throne judgment, the sad thing is your your works, the Bible says even your good works are like filthy rags. You know, we, we, well, Lord, I gave money to the church. I volunteered for the Boy Scouts. I taught Sunday school. Even our good works are like filthy rags. And, and we, we think that somehow our good will outweigh our bad. That's a bad gamble right there. The Bible tells us there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one that really doeth good. No one that really seeks God. And so they'll be standing here at the great white throne and they'll be judged and all their evil things they've done, all the evil thoughts they've thunk. Man, it's going to be out for all to see right here. And they'll be judged according to their works. Verse 13, and the sea, which in the book of Revelation is an idiom for the nations of the world. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it and, the, and death and hell delivered up the dead. Death and hell is another way of Hades and Sheol. You Bible students know those are different places. Death and hell were delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. See, some people think that this judgment, the great white throne judgment, that some people will be judged as good, others will be bad, but that's not the way it shakes out. Everyone that is standing before this great white throne judgment is going to be doomed. You say, well, Brett, that's really peppy. I brought my grandma this morning and listened to you. You're just talking about death and hell and fire and brimstone, man. Well, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. Um, When Solomon says judgment, that God is going to judge, he's right. It's true. And everyone will be judged. The question is, will you be at this judgment or, or will you be at a different judgment called the Bema Seat of Christ? or the judgment seat of Christ. In, in fact, let's, let's explore that. I'll have you just turn to a couple more places real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you back up a little bit in your Bible into the New Testament, First and Second Corinthians are right there. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is where he brings up this idea of the great, not, not the great white throne, the, the Bema seat judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. Before I read this, let me explain the word Bema or Bema as some say. Um, a person in Corinth would have known exactly what this was. It was, a, it was a judgment seat that was used during the Olympic Games. 
It was a place where the, the judges would sit and award the, um, you know, the awards to the athletes for first place, you know. Uh, they'd give that wreath crown of leaves on their head and reward them. This is the Bema seat. And when we went to Corinth just uh, two summers ago with a bunch of you Athey Creekers, we went to the ancient ruins of Corinth and we saw the Bema seat right where it sat, where they would judge and award the uh, athletes with their, their prizes. So you, the Corinthians, when, when Paul's going to say the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat judgment, they knew this was about rewards because that's what it meant. It was sort of synonymous. So here's where he kind of brings this up in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who must all appear before the... We. Who's this? Who's saying this? Anybody? Who's speaking here? Paul the Apostle. And who's he speaking to? The Corinthian church. Okay, this is huge. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul is including himself and the church at Corinth. That's kind of important. Are we going to be at the uh, great white throne judgment? If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you've been saved, you will not be at the judgment uh, called the great white throne judgment. But if you're a Christian, you'll be at this judgment. What's going to happen there? It says here, um, for we must all appear, verse 10, before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Just like Solomon said in our text. The Lord's going to judge whether good or, or bad. That's what's going to happen. Knowing 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God or made known unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Um, so what's going on here? There's, there's going to be a judgment that everyone, um, we, Paul the Apostle, the Corinthian church, us, Athe Crickers, we're all going to be at this judgment. And what's the point? That everyone may receive, that's receiving a, 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 a you know, reward, if you would, for the things that they've done, whether it was good or bad. Now, uh, what are you saying, Brett? Well, here's the thing. Um, this is where your good works will be tried and tested. Was it good or bad? In fact, one more passage. Would you flip over to First uh, Corinthians chapter 3? Of course, Paul's talking about building your life, master builder, and, you know, unless you build the foundation, no man can lay, you know, that which is laid is, is Jesus. Building your life on Jesus. But then he talks about this Bema seat judgment or the judgment seat of Christ again in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. He says, Now if any man build up on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest or made known. For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath, or last, which he hath built thereupon, it says he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Okay, so what's this all about? At the judgment seat of Christ, your works that you've done in this lifetime will be tested by fire. 
And won't that be an interesting thing? Now, now you got to understand, everyone that goes to the great white throne judgment is going to be cast into Gehenna, the lake of fire. That's a bad thing. Everyone that's at the judgment seat of Christ, I believe they're going to make it to heaven. But their works will be judged. And see, some of you are like, cool, man, I want to be at that one. And I don't care about rewards. I don't like blue ribbons. I'm not into, you know, flowery wreaths on my head. Uh, crown for crown. You know, like there, there's something about the rewards that we're going to get. Some people are like, yeah, as long as I make it to heaven, who cares? I don't even care if I smell like smoke, as long as I make it. Some of you might get to heaven and we'll be like, welcome to heaven, man, you made it. Man, that's great though. Some of you are like, cool, I'm good with that. But here's the thing. For some reason, the rewards that we get at this judgment are going to matter in eternity. Don't get me wrong. When we get to heaven, all the tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more crying or sorrow. Like it's going to be awesome for everyone in heaven. But everybody's capacity to be involved and joy, it's going to be different somehow because of these rewards, I believe. And it's kind of a mystery. The point is, I think Paul, when he saw heaven, he said, I'm going to run the race to do what? Win the prize. Paul was all about that once he saw what the Lord showed him about heaven. He said, man, run the race to win the prize. I'm going to fight the good fight of faith. He used athletic terms a lot. And the athletic terms bring us to this judgment seat, the Bema seat, where athletic rewards were given. You see the correlation of Paul's athletic terms in the rewards of heaven? That's, that's what he's trying to say as an analogy. So it will matter. And how will your works be tried? Uh, the good deeds, the Lord will measure them. I wonder how that's going to work out. I've always thought of that. And, you know, it, it does seem like it's going to be kind of brutal to some, I, I, but I, I worry a little bit, you know, where, where things that you and I do, how are they going to last? Pastor Brett, let's see how you did. Here's that sermon you preached. Let's see, put it in the fire. Gone. Well, Lord, I preached the sermon. Yeah, but that sermon, you told some jokes that weren't funny. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I wonder about that. Some of you are like, Lord, Lord, I gave of my tithe and my offering at Athey Creek. When the bucket came by, I put money in. And Lord, let's, let's try that by fire. Gone. Oh, come on. I gave money to the church. Yeah, but I saw your intention when, when the bucket came by, you grabbed the bucket and you lifted your money up a little higher <laughs> just so people could see. And then passed the bucket. Lord, the Lord sees all the intentions of the heart and our, why we're doing what we're doing. And all of that will be measured, tried by fire. And the stuff that's good, that was legit, like gold and silver. What does fire do to, to gold and silver? Anybody? It purifies it. Man, I love that. But if it's not pure, it's wood, hay, or stubble, it'll be burned up. You'll be there. It says he'll be still saved, but his works and the rewards that come from that won't happen. So what's the point? The point is judgment's coming. And man, you need to make sure and not be a part of the first judgment that we were talking about there, the great white throne judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And the idea is eternal death in hell forever. And, and, and yet the Lord loves humanity so much. And, and yet he's so righteous. He's still gonna judge humanity, but he loves humanity so much. He, the Bible says, Peter tells us in his epistles, Oh, I, the Lord, would that none should perish. The heart of the Lord is to save everyone. Well, why doesn't he save everyone? Because he leaves it up to you. He's given you a free will, whether you want to follow after him and, or rebel against him. It's, it's up to you. Well, Brad, I haven't rebelled against the Lord. I've just not made a choice. I hope you understand 
But the Lord has put it in the heart of every person to know their need. You've had that little stirring in your heart that says, you need to be forgiven of your sins. But if you ignore that, and if you blow off the the message that God has given to us of salvation, then the Bible says you'll be held accountable for your sins. All your deeds are written in that book, and they're going to come to record at the great white throne judgment. I hope that none of you here on this Sunday morning will be at the great white throne judgment. But my prayer is that we all show up to that judgment seat of Christ. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we sort of lived our lives, not for ourselves, like Solomon did in Ecclesiastes, but hear what Solomon says. He says, fear God, keep his commandments, for God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, even the stuff behind the scenes, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I think he's kind of talking about, for us believers, how the Lord's going to judge our good deeds, our bad deeds, and and, and it's going to matter in heaven. What will it matter in heaven, some might say. Um, You know, this idea of capacity, I like to use the example of Disneyland. When I took my kids to Disneyland, I remember the first time, you know, Casey and Brooke and Joe, they were just little guys. And they like, they really liked Peter Pan ride. Okay, everybody, here we go, off of the little flying ship. They loved that. That was awesome. They were horrified of Space Mountain. They didn't want to go on California screaming or or even the Indiana Jones ride with flames and snakes and stuff. They didn't want that stuff. But they loved the teacups. So there I was. Hey, let's go. This is great. Love. We did that. And my kids loved that. Their capacity to enjoy was, was different than my capacity. My capacity, man, I love the fast rides, the roller coasters. And you know what's funny is the older my kids got, the more they enjoyed the faster, crazier, you know, and pretty soon, even Disneyland's a little bit, you, you got to go to Magic Mountain instead because, man, you need the Goliath and the, you know, the Viper and the, uh, you know, some of the super, you, you got to have a little more fun because your capacity changes. Now, question, does everybody enjoy, enjoy Disneyland? Little kids and old alike? Yes. And that's what heaven's going to be like. Everybody's going to love it. But what's your capacity in heaven going to be? I believe that it has something to do with these rewards of the Bema Seat Judgment Could that be where Solomon, in his wisdom, concludes the matter saying, fear God, keep his commandments, but also God is judge, and he's going to judge what we do, whether it be good or whether it be bad. And Paul the Apostle spent all of his time talking about, I'm going to run the race to win the prize. And he talks about the judgment seat of Christ. And I wonder if that's something you and I should maybe think about. Lord, check my motives of why I do what I'm doing. Some of you are here this Sunday morning because why? Well, some of you are here because you just love Jesus. And you worship him because you love the Lord, man, and, and you have no ill motive or whatever. Um, and man, that, I think that's going to count as you worship the Lord. It's going to count to good things. Others of you are here because your wife dragged you here. Um, and uh, you gave money because the guy next to you, you saw he's looking at you, you thought, well, I better give, here's a couple dollars, you know, whatever. And you're doing it for a different reason. And, and I would just say, don't do that stuff. It'd be better for you not to give it all if you're doing it to be seen of men because you have your reward. That's what it is. Some guy going, oh, he gave some money. Wow. There it is. That's your reward. Yay. But the, the person that's here because they're really doing it for the Lord, as unto the Lord, man, that's going to matter somehow in eternity. And everything you do, everything that I do, we have to measure it. Is it wood, hay, or stubble? Or is it gold, silver, and precious stones? That's the question. 
Solomon learned that living for himself was just emptiness. That's the wood, hay, and stubble stuff. And so he said, the end of the, the matter is, man, living for the Lord. Fear God, keep his commandments, for God is the judge. And that's the conclusion. So may the Lord give us ears to hear. What a powerful sermon Solomon gives. He, his life is a sermon that preaches. It preaches that you live for yourself, you live for this life, you'll be miserable. You fear God, keep his commandments, and serve him, do the right thing. Man, that'll matter, and it'll make a massive difference. Learn from the mistakes of Solomon. Some of us will learn here in the sanctuary. Others will learn out in the storm. It's up to you. Which one are you going to do? In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this admonition given by Solomon to us, Lord, to... um, to first of all, fear you. Help us, Lord, to have a healthy, God-fearing attitude. Lord, I pray that you'd change our hearts where we've learned to fear what man can do to us more than what we fear about what you will do. Lord, I pray that we live in that attitude of respect and reverence and, and that we would honor you with our lives. Lord, not just playing games, but truly living for you. I pray that we would keep those commandments to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we live in a culture, in a world that's so mean-spirited right now, and people say cruel, hateful things. Lord, I pray that we as believers would be those who love others. Show us, Lord, in these days how to be loving, even when everybody else is hating. Lord, I pray that we'd love you and love others. And then, Lord, even as Solomon says, that we'd remember that judgment's coming. May we be cognizant of those things, Lord, and and living our lives accordingly. If you would, just keeping your heads bowed in in an attitude of prayer as Christians, if you're a Christian, just be praying. I wonder if some of you are still in your sin and yet to to be saved, man. You say, brother, are you trying to scare me? If you're talking about fire and brimstone, man, that's a fire and brimstone sermon you're giving. Well, it's what the Bible teaches. And as we go through the Bible, we have to think about the things that are true. And if the great white throne judgment is true, which it is, and the Bible talks about that, um, should you be concerned? Should you be thinking, man, I don't want any part of some judgment where I'm going to be thrown into hell. Well, Brett, I don't believe that if God is love, he won't throw people in hell. God is love. And he's giving you the free pass because he's love out of hell. But you need to accept it. You need to receive what Jesus did. God became a man, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came and lived among us, lived that perfect life, innocent blood shed on the cross for you in your place. And anyone, you're the whosoever. The what? The whosoever. In John 3, 16, the most famous verse, maybe in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's such a simple answer to such a complex problem. Man's messed up. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the question is, how do you accept that gift? It's so, it's so powerful. You, you, the Bible says, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead, it says you will be saved. Saved from what? The great white throne judgment and eternal death and hell in Gehenna or 
fire and brimstone, burning, eternal torment. Praise the Lord that Jesus has given us the free gift. You need to confess it and believe it to receive it. That's, that's the simple truth. So yes, am I trying to scare you? Yeah, because it's scary. But how happy is the man, the woman, that is their sins forgiven? David said, blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that all my sins are forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.